Thank you, Brian. That was a beautiful song. Appreciated that. Our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Acts 11, 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, make no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is God's holy word. Christianity has been advancing for 2,000 years because of the power of God and the strategy of God. And in Acts chapter 10, we saw God's strategy in, in seeing how the message of Jesus Christ, the good news, the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ alone, um, left uh, the original Jewish confines of the early church and moved into the Gentile world. Uh, as the Holy Spirit worked through the Apostle Peter in reaching a Gentile man called Cornelius and his household, his family and friends. But for the Gentiles to be accepted into the early church, uh, Jewish Christians within the early church, because up until that point, all the Christians were Jewish believers uh, from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, But the Jewish Christians had some cultural assumptions and some traditional views that, in the words of James Boyce, who was a preacher in the 1980s, uh, needed to be addressed forcefully and directly. 
If Christianity was going to accept the Gentiles, there were some cultural assumptions and some religious traditions that had to be addressed forcefully and directly. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing through the Apostle Peter in Acts chapters 10 and 11. In a way, Acts chapter 11 is is kind of a prequel to Acts chapter 10. Because Peter retells the story that we read last week in Acts chapter 10. And he just does it in a few verses in Acts chapter 11. Before we dive into this really important chapter, I I have a question for you. I want you to, to give me some ideas. What are some things that unify very different types of people to make them a cohesive group or unit or body? Today, I want to talk to you about unity. But in your experience, doesn't, I don't, I'm not just looking for religious answers, but in your experience, what are some things that unify very different people? A common cause, okay. Shared experiences, yes. They share an experience, they have a common cause, yes. F- food. Wow, yeah, that really warms me up. Absolutely. If, if you like food, I'll, we'll like each other. Yeah, food. Yeah. Interesting you say that. A tool set or instructions, like if you want to build something. Yeah, and you know, as a musician, I thought of that this week. I, I realized very different people who play very different musical instruments can achieve unity by following the same instructions. It may be theory right, or a melody or a particular style, and they can make music together. What else? I saw one or two other hands. Right, like if we both like the Yankees, as you all should, <laughs> we can have unity, even amongst Red Sox fans who might be among us. So just, I just had to throw it out there. I'm sorry. Any other? Yeah. Disaster and empathy. empathy. Interesting. Wow, there's a a lot packed into those two words. Yeah, haven't you noticed that some people, when they are are put through adversity, where they are tested, uh, they they are forced to trust one another, and unity comes out out of that period of testing. One more. Yeah. A large scale. A large-scale tragedy like what happened on September 11th. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Those are really good thoughts. I appreciate them. So when we, when we talk about unity from a Christian perspective, and you know, I, I, whether you're a Christian or whether you're, you see yourself as an outsider to Christianity and you're looking at it trying to figure out what's really going on there, uh, Christianity has a remarkable unifying agent. The Bible teaches that Christians have inherently, by the grace of God, by definition of being a Christian, they have something, a supernatural agent that inherently, by nature of being a Christian, unifies all Christians. And it's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. Jesus unifies all Christians with his Holy Spirit. Now, if you have noticed in verse 16 of Acts chapter 11, there's this curious expression that in the last 200 years or so has been the source of tension amongst Christians. Baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you read through the book of Acts, and we are, you can't help but wonder, what is the Holy Spirit doing 
through these chapters and in people and, and how do we apply what the Holy Spirit did back then specifically to us right now? The baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, has been a source of tension in the wider church uh, for a while. But I think if we study it carefully and humbly, it can actually be a source of great unity. And that's, that's what I'm hoping to promote today is unity as we take a close look at the Holy Spirit and what he does. Now, you may be reading through Acts or listening to these Acts readings in the last several months or like today and wonder, you know, am I baptized in the Holy Spirit? Because it says, verse 16, Peter remembers what the Lord Jesus told his apostles. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And some people may ask, well, am I baptized with the Holy Spirit? And, and um, do I experience what I see people experiencing in the book of Acts? The book of Acts talks about the Spirit of God working and people speaking in tongues and prophesying and great miracles, signs and wonders taking place. Are those evident in my life? Some of you may say yes. Some of you may say, no, I, I don't share those experiences. Well, today I want to attempt to bring some clarity that I really hope will accomplish unity. That's my end game. That's my goal. Unity, not division, uh, not any sense of superiority or inferiority, but unity. Now, to get there, I just want to lay out a couple of biblical principles, very simple principles for interpreting the Bible. Uh, The first one is this, to be able to distinguish between what is descriptive in the Bible, and what is didactic in the Bible. Very simple. What's descriptive just means you read something and it tells you what happened. A historical narrative like the book of Acts or the book of Genesis or the book of Joshua. But there is also didactic literature in the Bible, which what is really doing is didactic literature is telling you what all the things that happened actually meant, what they actually mean. So something happens that's descriptive, but then you'll see places in the Bible that, that get didactic, meaning they tell you what the things that happened actually mean for you, how you're supposed to understand them and how you're supposed to apply them to your life personally. We have to separate descriptive from didactic concepts in Scripture. For example, you may remember in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead because they lied to God. That's a descriptive passage. Just because they were struck dead for lying to God doesn't mean that you're going to get struck dead for lying. Let's talk didactic, though. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, do not lie to one another. That's didactic. That's, that applies to everybody, all Christians, in all ages who follow Jesus Christ. We shouldn't lie to one another. That's for everybody. Um, there's another principle, though. Not only should we distinguish between what's descriptive in Scripture and what's didactic, we should also allow all of Scripture to help us understand one particular part of Scripture. If you look at one chapter in the Bible or one verse and you're saying, well, what does this mean? This seems bizarre. You let the rest of the Bible help you understand it. Because somewhere and maybe in many places, there are other insights that the Holy Spirit offers us in the Bible to shed light on that one passage 
or that one chapter. Um, John Stott wrote a great book called Baptism and Fullness, the work of the Holy Spirit today. We have two copies on the book table. You are free to sign them out if you would like. I highly recommend the book. It gives a lot of clarity about the Holy Spirit. But Stott summarizes these principles really well. And he says, what's described in Scripture as having happened to others is not necessarily intended for us. Whereas what is promised to us, we are to appropriate. What is commanded us, we are to obey. He also wrote, what is descriptive is valuable only insofar as it's interpreted by what is didactic. And what he's saying there is, if you see something in the Bible that is telling you what happened at a certain time to certain people, to truly understand what it means and how it applies to you, you have to go to other places in the Bible, places that teach, that are didactic, that will help you interpret what it means for you. We know that Jesus was born. We know that Jesus died on a Roman cross. We know that Jesus rose from the dead. Because the Bible describes those things happening. You go to teaching passages when Jesus taught, when the apostles taught, when the apostles wrote letters to the church for normative practical living. And those are the passages that explain to you what the life and death and resurrection of Jesus actually means for you and why it matters for you. So that's, that's how we bring these ideas together. Now, having said that, I want to try and move forward into Acts chapter 11. So this phrase, baptized with the Spirit, I'll just say it right up front, it's associated with belief. The concept of being baptized by the Holy Spirit seems in the scriptures to be most associated with belief in Jesus. Another way of saying it, faith in Jesus. In the beginning of Acts chapter 11, in verse 3, Peter's criticized. He goes back to Jerusalem. Everybody's heard that the Gentiles in Caesarea have, have believed the word of God, have become Christians, have decided to follow Jesus. And he was criticized by some. Actually, uh, we see that uh, the circumcised party, or the party of the circumcision, um, criticized him and said, hey, you went and hung out with Gentiles. That's basically what they were saying. You hung out with Gentiles. You went in their house. You ate food with them. What gives? Why'd you do that? And what we're and actually, John Calvin says basically this is a group of people who were addicted to following the law. They were law addicts, is the way John Calvin put it. It's a little too zealous for not simply the Old Testament law, but the Jewish traditions that went beyond the meaning of the Old Testament law. And so Peter, now Peter could have said, I'm an apostle, keep your mouth shut. But he didn't say that. Uh, Peter very humbly, beginning in verse four, we're told Peter explained it to them in order. And now I'm gonna just take you verse by verse uh, through, through part of the passage. He retells the story of what happened with him and Cornelius. But in verse 14, this is really important to begin here in verse 14. Peter quotes what the angel had told the Gentile man, Cornelius. The, the angel said to Cornelius before Peter got to Cornelius's house, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Cornelius, somebody named Peter is coming to you and he's going to speak 
words to you. And the message of what he says, the message of what he says is going to save you and your household. And then in verse 15, Peter picks up where he enters the house. And Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Now, what does he mean? The spirit fell on them as just as on us. Who's us? Well, it's not just Peter and the 12. And it's not just the 120 that were in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. It was all of them and the 3,000 people who became Christians on the day of Pentecost. And there was a lot taking place there in the first two chapters of Acts, in the very beginning of the church in Jerusalem. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us in the beginning. The Spirit fell on them, Peter says, as I began to speak. Getting back to that concept of what saves them is going to be the message that they hear. I'm going to move into verse 16. Peter, retelling the story, says, Now, at that moment, when I saw the Holy Spirit fall on these Gentiles, when I began to speak, I remembered something that Jesus said to me. And Peter quotes the words of Jesus, um, verse 16. Peter quotes Acts chapter 1, verse 5. When Jesus was still with them, he said, You got to wait. Hang out in Jerusalem. Stay here. I don't want you going anywhere. Because the promise... The Holy Spirit is coming from my father. And, and, and he quotes Jesus's words to them. John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus at that time was reminding them of something that his cousin, John the Baptist, had said at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry. John the Baptist told the Jews, I have baptized you with you water, but he, meaning Jesus, he will baptize you. With the Holy Spirit. So you, you've seen a minister baptize somebody with water into the church. Jesus is saying, I am going to baptize you with my Holy Spirit. Not with water. I'm going to baptize you with my Holy Spirit. And this is something that all the ancient prophets in the Old Testament talked about. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel. I will pour out my flesh, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, in verse 17, Peter said, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed, and we is not just the apostles, the entire, all the people that came to Christ first in Jerusalem. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And then in verse 18, those who were listening to Peter and amongst them were doubters, they responded. They said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So it seems that when Peter taught, because Acts is mostly descriptive, right? It's, it's mostly a historical narrative. And yet there is teaching in Acts. The apostles stand up and they speak and they preach and they teach. And in this moment, it seems that Peter in his teaching is associating the baptism of the Holy Spirit with faith. And faith is believing and repenting, which the Jews point to. They say, ah, so now repentance that leads to life is not just for us, 
but also for the Gentiles. Not just for the blood descendants of Abraham, but by faith for everyone. Now, this, re- this is very reminiscent of what Peter said on the very first day that the church was born. In Acts chapter 2, when thousands of souls were added to the apostles and to their friends. Peter said this to them. You may remember this from, from months ago. He said, they, they heard the message of the gospel and they said, what do we do? We're struck to the heart. And he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repent and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promise. And if you look at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit, it was the gift that God had promised to his people that was about to come upon the church. So it seems that The baptism of the Holy Spirit means, what does it mean? If you're wondering, well, if you read the Bible, it seems to mean receiving the Spirit himself when you believe. For the first time, when you put your faith, when you trust Jesus, you stop trusting in yourself and you begin to trust Jesus Christ, that is when Jesus baptizes you in his Spirit. And you may be saying, well, hold on, that's just Peter talking. In one place in the Bible. Okay, good point. Well, let's talk about Paul. Because right? Peter and Paul are, are, are kind of regarded as the pillars of the New Testament. What did Paul say? Almost exactly the same thing. To two different churches. Paul, in his letters, basically said this. And, and I'm, Galatians 3, you should read it. Galatians 3 is a good place to go to see what Paul thought about this. Paul said to the Galatians who had a big addiction to following the law and things outside of the law. They they were major law addicts. Okay, and they were very divisive. Um, And they actually were trying to get Gentiles to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. And Paul said to them, hold on a second. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. In another place to another church, the church in Rome, Paul said this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. By Greek, he means Gentiles. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now there, Paul quotes the prophet Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That was the promise. And now Paul is applying it to everybody in the church, Jew and Gentile. And he says, the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. What are his riches? His riches begin by giving you himself. That's what Abraham discovered thousands of years before, that the promise is not simply a kid, a child, an heir, a nation. The promise is you get God. 
You get God. God gives you himself. That's the promise of the Bible. And there's no greater manifestation of the presence of God himself than God giving you his spirit. And Jesus and Paul and Peter said, you get the spirit when by faith you give up trying to live a life on your own and you give yourself to Jesus and you begin trusting him. So the promised gift is it's not a sign like like tongues or a miracle or or prophetic words, although you see those things happening. And I'm not speaking against those those signs, uh, but but the promised gift are not the signs that surround the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit himself. Now, I, I am not speaking disrespectfully against my Christians who I love dearly and have spent years with in ministry and in worship uh, who are more of the Pentecostal and charismatic perspective who, who really, when they talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they really focus on signs like, like tongues and prophetic words um, and miracles. I'm not discounting any of those experiences um, because... The Lord takes the same message of salvation and, and, and we all in very unique ways put our faith in Christ. We're all believing the same message and the same Jesus, but our experiences are unique. And I'm not disrespecting people who would disagree with me. Um, here's my concern, though. A preoccupation with the signs that you read about in the book of Acts. Being preoccupied with them and wondering, am I a real Christian if I don't have signs like that? Or am I a better Christian because I do get signs like that in my life? My my concern of being preoccupied with the signs is that the signs then overshadow the real lesson. The The signs then, being occupied with them, it overshadows what God's trying to teach us in passages like this. And here's the lesson that we can't miss, that Jesus gives his spirit to anyone who trusts him, in the words of Peter, without distinction. This is not just a lesson about doctrine. We're going to move out of that. Okay, It's practical. We've got to apply this. Here's what it means, okay? Here's what the bap- this is why the baptism of the Holy Spirit really matters. It is so critical, and here's why. The baptism of the Holy Spirit promotes two really important things. If we walk away from the Holy Spirit, if we walk away from Scripture's teaching on the Holy Spirit without these two things, we're almost missing it all. The first is personal assurance, and the second is corporate solidarity. Personal assurance for you and solidarity for all of us. Personal assurance, every person who trusts Jesus Christ by faith can be sure they have the Spirit of God in them. Um, Paul said in Romans 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now remember, sons in the Bible means men and women. Because in the ancient world, only sons could inherit an estate. But according, according to the Bible, men and women are heirs in Christ. So that's what sons means. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Upon believing in Jesus, you have forgiveness. 
You have God's forgiveness, no question about it. You put your faith in Jesus, you have God's forgiveness. You have eternal life. And you are no longer an alien. You are no longer an orphan, I mean. You're a child of God. You've been adopted by a heavenly father. When you put your faith in Jesus, these things are yours. Forgiveness, life, and a seat at God's table. As a daughter, as a son, a place in his family. And no one can tell you otherwise. Personal assurance is critical, isn't it? You like walking around wondering whether you're a Christian or not and wondering if God loves you and wondering if you've said something wrong or done something wrong to offend God. You don't have to live in fear because we're told when we believe in Jesus, God gives us his spirit and it is a spirit that tells us we're no longer orphans. We're his beloved adopted sons and daughters. Personal assurance. But here's the other one. Corporate solidarity. So this spirit who adopts each of us unifies all of us. Because if you're adopted and I'm adopted, it means we have the same daddy. It means we're heirs of the same inheritance. And now unity is much more important. It's more than a cultural fad. It's more than some trendy thing. Unity for unity's sake. No, now unity is critical. Because we've all been adopted by the same spirit who's telling all of us we're each children of God. The Apostle Paul again to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 12. He said to them, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free. All were made to drink of one spirit. The Lord Jesus baptizes us with his spirit when we trust him by faith. James Boyce Talking about Acts chapter 11 and the tension that you see in the beginning when, when certain Jews come to Peter and say, hey, you hung out with Gentiles, what's up? This is what he said. The point is that God takes people as they are. They don't have to become something else before they come to Jesus. We must reach out to everyone. And we must not count it a threat when God brings into our fellowship someone from our perspective who just doesn't seem to fit. What matters most is not whether other people fit in with us, but that they have been accepted by God. That's what matters. We look at people and go, they don't think the way I do politically or socially. or They have a different theology than I have. They don't look like I do. I knew people like that who offended me, who beat me up, who criticized me, who took my job away from me. So if we're going to fellowship and worship together, they're going to have to become like me. None of us say that. But it's really hard not to feel that way. What a timely encouragement for these contentious days in our society to hear that if you're a Christian by nature of just being a Christian, by nature of putting your faith in Jesus, you're united with all other Christians, regardless of these other differences that we might have about who we voted for and, and, and what kind of books we read and who's hurt us in our lives, regardless of what color and what culture and what language they speak. Isn't it great to know that we all have the same spirit who's adopted us all, who loves us all and reminds us, you're my sons and daughters, you're my heirs. You don't have to do a single thing for that to be true. But now everything flows out of that. 
When you hear in the New Testament, be filled with the Spirit. It's not saying, get the Spirit, you don't have Him. No, it's saying you have the Spirit, now keep in step with the Spirit. So that the Spirit will work through you to bless other people. Be filled with the Spirit. Desire the gifts of the Spirit so you can be useful in the church and to other people. And if you belong to Jesus, well, then you'll have the fruits of the Spirit, the evidence that the Spirit is working in your life. But he doesn't keep telling us, go get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus and Peter and Paul said, you believe God's given you his Spirit. That's how you begin. And that's all you need. And everything beyond that is a response that we must, we must obey out of love and faith for him. So I, I, I think we should just praise God for <laughs> praise God for his Holy Spirit who cleanses us, who gives us life, who adopts us. That's incredible. And finally, who unifies us. Now, let's be careful not to stand in the way of spirit-made unity. Spirit-made unity. Okay? Not just the unity that you hear about when you read the newspaper. Because that's unity for the sake of unity. We're talking about unity because God says we're unified. Because he's adopted us. So, let's be careful not to stand in the way of spirit-made unity. And here, we can't forget what Peter said humbly to, to, these, to these folks who questioned him, he said to them in verse 17, who was I that I could stand in God's way? The real hang-up, the real hang-up of the law addicts was this. Not, not that Peter preached to the Gentiles, it, but if Peter was right, then they all had to let Gentiles into the church. And they all had to let Gentiles into their homes. I mean, if, if what Peter did was correct, then it, it was true for all of them. Now, we all have to eat with Gentiles because God is not holding them back. He's including them. That, that was the real hang-up. And so in response to that, James Boyce wrote, We are all glad to have other people join us as long as they become like us. And that's, that's the problem right there. That's the rub is, is we, say, we, we, say we, want a diver, we say we want a diverse society. More importantly, we say we want a diverse church. But often what we mean is we want people to be like us, to like the same music we like, the food we like, to, to vote the way we vote politically, to like the causes we like, and then we'll accept everybody. That, that, that's not what the Holy Spirit says. Guess what? They're mine now. They're mine because they've decided to trust this Jesus guy. You're going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to deal with it. And Peter had to deal with it, which is why the Holy Spirit started with Peter. And then the church had to deal with it, which is why he then sent Peter back to the church. And now we've got to deal with it. So ask yourself, what cultural or traditional assumptions do you hold that, that make, it, make it very hard? to accept other people in the context of our faith community? Uh, what, what traditional assumptions do, do we hold that virtually exclude other people? Maybe it's, just a worship, maybe it's just a worship style. Maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe it's, maybe it's more complicated. Maybe it's politics or, or, or a social posture. Uh, maybe it's a personality or a skin color or, or, a, or a language barrier. Do we just exclude people because they're not like us? That was the problem the church had to deal with if it was going to grow. 
And I, I just want to offer this. What God has made clean, do not call common. As we saw in Acts chapter 10. That's what Peter had to hear and it's what we have to hear. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. Yeah, when people come to us and, and, and when, when we're broken and damaged, we're going to heal one another's brokenness. When we fall out of line and, and, and struggle in sin, we're going to lovingly correct one another. But we don't get to hold people at the door and say, become like me and then we'll accept you. Jesus just brings people in. We have to catch up with him. He just brings people in who are willing to trust him. And we all have to figure out, we all have to figure out how to trust him together. I mean, that seems so vivid here in the book of Acts. They're just trying to learn how to accept one another. Let's be careful not to stand in the way of the Spirit's unity, but let's ask God to transform our doubting into worshiping. The scholar F.F. Bruce said, their objections finally ceased, right? They, they were silent, Luke tells us. Peter, Peter was so thorough and so convincing, the, the facts were so convincing that they finally were silent. And it says they praised God. And let us have that kind of a transformation where we go from skepticism and doubt that God would even work in such and such or with cer- certain people um, and actually worship that it's even possible How do you get there? How do you go from skepticism about those types of people you're thinking about right now, whoever they are? How do you go from that kind of skepticism to worship and praise and thankfulness? How do you get there? Well, I want to remind you of what Jesus said to his his disciples and to the crowds in John chapter 12. He said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. John said he was talking about how he's going to die. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. See, Jesus, Jesus gathers all peoples by his sacrifice. Your enemy became your friend on the cross. God had every right to call you his enemy. But on the cross, God became your friend. The Jews are in amazement. They're, they're praising God because they're amazed that the Gentiles could actually become their friends. Have you thought of it that way? The Jews are saying, oh, so now salvation's for the Gentiles. That was huge for them. They're saying for centuries, we don't have to, we don't have to disagree anymore. There's hope that we can be friends. There's hope that, that the wall of division can finally come down. That's remarkable. And, and it caused them... with. It caused them, even with their skepticism, it caused them to worship God. Who do you hate that by the grace of God might become your friend? Who do you distrust who by the grace of God might become your brother, might become your sister? And still look different than you and speak differently than you. Unity of the spirit becomes visible. It's there. If you have the spirit as a Christian, if I have the spirit as a Christian, the unity is there. We have to to realize that it's there and begin living in accordance with it. So the unity of the spirit becomes visible when we sacrificially befriend one another and befriend our enemies because that's what's going on in Acts chapter 11. 
The unity of the Spirit becomes visible when we sacrificially make our enemies our friends by the grace of God. Jesus unifies all Christians with his Holy Spirit. All Christians. Through Christ and through his Spirit, we lack nothing. We lack nothing that we need to achieve unity. We keep reading books and going to seminars. That Great, good. But we have everything we need in the spirit of God to be unified. We have to see it and live by it. And look, if you don't have this Jesus, if you haven't said, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm giving up life by my own standards and I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live by your standards. If, if you haven't said that, Let the Spirit of God come to you by giving yourself to Jesus. Trust Him and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Be forgiven once and for all. Be forgiven, friend. Once and for all, have life that you cannot lose, although you're going to die. And once and for all, Stop running around and living and thinking like an orphan in the universe. And come into the arms of a God who will make you his son. Will make you his daughter. And will never give you up. Will never turn you away. Come to him. Receive his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we turn our attention to the table of our Lord. Who gave himself up who gave himself up for his enemies, asking for their forgiveness, bleeding and being broken for their forgiveness. Father, we ask that you would help us to keep in step with your Holy Spirit and in that common identity, find unity and offer it to others. In Christ, amen.